church, uh, ecclesiology, specifically uh, pastors. I want to focus in on that this episode, if we could, and just talk about pastoring, pastors, maybe even going into a more broader idea of eldership. I know that there may be a lot of assumptions, even when we say the word pastor, and maybe we need to back up and talk, uh, you know, about the legitimacy of the office of pastor or whether it's a legitimate office. But, you know, it's I have been a pastor in the past for six years at Stonebrook Community Church. Tim, you were a pastor for a few years in um, in Oregon. Yes, and I'm becoming an elder. So You're becoming an elder. You're yeah. in the process right mm-hmm. now. And, of course, I'm, Sam, I'm trying to age as fast as I can. Yeah. To become an elder. Get it? Okay. Yeah, we got it. We're just <laughs> yeah, trying yeah. to let it slip. <laughs> we, hoped, uh, we hoped it wasn't meant to be a joke. Yeah. Oh, man. It was really funny to me. And Sam, you are a pastor and have been a pastor not only for the last uh, five years now, is it? At Bridgeway. Yeah. Yeah, a little about almost five and a half years. Five and a half about years. 40 total. And then, yeah, whenever you started out in 74. 40 years mm-hmm. in the pastorate. I was ordained in 2001. Uh, You know, at the time, it was right after I graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. And so Dallas Theological Seminary, the graduation was very important, I think, for uh, gaining some degree of qualifications for whatever it is that the Lord was going to use me for. But whenever I got ordained, that that was different. That was, I didn't expect it to be different in such a way. I didn't expect the ordination to be such a, such a important part of my call to ministry. I figured that's just kind of a side thing. You know, you get ordained and find somebody, you know, a church that'll do it. But it became, it has become something that's very important. I was ordained 2001. Uh, elders at uh, Stonebrook Community Church ordained me. And ordination is a something that Protestants carry on. We at least hope that people are ordained whenever they're in the pastorate. But what is that? I mean, here's, here's the question that I'm trying to get to is, what qualifies someone for being a pastor, both biblically and from the standpoint of the church? Because sometimes I get really irritated, Tim. I get irritated by people who start churches, and I think, you shouldn't be starting a church. I get irritated by people who start churches who have not only no qualifications, maybe they've never been to seminary, they just kind of get this idea, had a dream last night and want to start a church, and yet have nobody that has laid their hands on them, nobody who has said, you are called into ministry. But at the same time, I get irritated with myself because I'm holding on to a tradition as well. Is ordination necessary for the pastorate? That's a big question because there are quite a few who don't even think that it's biblical. Uh, The fact is the the term itself doesn't occur in the New Testament. Um, We read in 1 Timothy 4, uh, verse 14, Paul talks about uh, the council of elders laying hands on Timothy. But we don't know what that was for. Uh, Paul refers to it again in 2 Timothy 1, when he talks about stirring up the gift that is within you through the laying on of my hands. Now, we don't know if that's part referring to the same event or not. But, um, you know, there's so many questions here, such as, what is a pastor? Um, Is what we would call pastor an office or only a gift? 
because there's massive implications for that, even with regard to the issue of whether women can be pastors. Because if it's a spiritual gift, many would say, yes, they can be. If it's an office, they would say, no, they can't. So how we understand the nature of being a pastor is very important. Uh, It seems also that we have texts which uh, use the concepts of elder and pastor interchangeably. So is it true that all elders are pastors? Probably are all pastors elders. Well, maybe not. Um, Where do we get the term pastor from? Well, it's only used, let me think, uh, is it only used three times, I think? Uh, only once as a noun, twice as a verb. In Acts twenty twenty eight. you know, in the commission that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders, he tells them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And it's literally the word to pastor or pastor the flock of God that is among you. First uh, Peter 5, Peter uses it in a similar way as a verb to talking about shepherding the flock. And then I think the only time the noun appears is in Ephesians 4, mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the list of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Uh, so those are the only places, I think, I may be wrong, but I think those are the only three places in the New Testament where the, where the language is used. Well, what I'm trying to do here, Tim, is trying to get something started with something that's real. I think everybody is familiar with the term pastor, and normally in the church, you have a pastor. Uh, Most churches function in such a way, unless it's maybe Plymouth Brethren or a Brethren type that don't uh, function in the same way. But most people are familiar with this. Or they can maybe use the word reverend as well. Yeah. Yeah. like you like you want to be revered, do you? Is that what? well? You know, <laughs> you can only be revered if you are ordained. I am. I am aging. Yeah, we have we have great reverence for you. <laughs> the um, but but it does come down to a broader issues of ecclesiology as well, and just how does the uh, church government function? And I think I want to talk about that a little bit later, you know, just more broad issues of legitimate ecclesiology, and I know it's going to cross over here, but I do want to talk just specifically about qualifications, pastors. Sam, whenever you have someone at your church and you are hiring them on as a pastor, um, what type of qualifications, biblical, you know, going to uh, Timothy and Titus passages, and also, what, what beyond that do you require? Well, you certainly mentioned, I think, the most fundamental thing, and that is I wouldn't hire anybody to be on the pastoral staff that I didn't think at some point could serve as an elder. Uh, I would hope that they would have all the qualifications of First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. If they are um, uniquely disqualified on those terms, I'd be very reluctant to, to hire them as a pastor. So I'm looking at somebody, obviously, the issue of character comes out first and foremost, just in terms of their Christ-likeness, humility, uh, certainly issues of gifting. You don't want, you know, you got a lot of really godly, high-character people, but they're not necessarily very competent when it comes to leading people and teaching the Word of God and uh, exercising uh, oversight and leadership. So you want quality character, Christ-likeness, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, those qualifications, um, together with um, gifting, together with are they actually already doing the stuff, so to speak? In other words, do you see them as already displaying the kind of uh, leadership and modeling and teaching and mentoring that you would expect them to do? Or, you know, 
it, you t always take a risk when you bring somebody on who's never even dipped a toe in the water in terms of, of local church ministry. Yeah. I mean, I hired a youth pastor uh, who was one year out of college, and it was his first job in ministry. But he had also served as an intern for us in our youth ministry, and we have, um, you know, we had every reason to believe that he was competent. He had shown it. He had ministered with the kids, the young people. So, um, but typically, you know, the guys that I've hired have, have already been at least in their 30s, and uh, most of them had uh, some considerable experience, if not in full-time vocational ministry, leading a small group, um, you know, showing themselves to be humble and uh, having a servant's heart. So all of those factors come into play. Um, I don't think that, just trying to think, I don't think that any I'll take it back. No, I don't think that any of the, the guys that I hired were already ordained. Um, so that the idea of formal ordination did not doesn't factor in as far as I'm concerned. Did you ordain them? Yes, uh, through the through your church. Yes, Tim. <clears throat> mm -hmm. If if um, we have you know you've got Baptist, you got Presbyterians, mm -hmm. you got Methodists, and everybody ordains differently. Mm -hmm. We're more, at least us around the table, are more from a broader kind of free church evangelical type of uh, uh, church background. Whenever you are thinking about this, do you see ordination as a requirement, and how would you define it? Well, I, I would look a lot more at, at Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 passages, and I think uh, where you were getting at in some ways too, with a past, with someone just saying, "Hey, I'm starting a church and I'm going to be the pastor or the overseer, um, or whatever you want to call it." Those things you can't, and I'm getting to what you're going to say, but you can't observe those things through a mirror, right? So I can't just look at a mirror and then look at First Timothy three and Titus one and say, "Oh yeah, I fit all of these. I'll start a church." But the important things I think are that these are communicated to people in community. And so I think that's why it's important to, like Sam saying, I might bring someone on with the thought that they could become an elder or an overseer, but we'll wait and observe and community them to ensure that, yes, they are fitting these qualifications. And so, so if someone comes over to, to my church and says, you know, I, I've, I've been an elder at this different denominational church, or I've been a pastor, or I've been ordained in this other group— um, I think what, what I would more than likely do instead of just looking at their ordination as like, oh, you know, that's what we're looking for on, on your resume to bring you into leadership here, but instead say, okay, that's a sign to us that they saw that you were fitting the qualifications of an overseer. But, you know, that could have been 20 years ago, and maybe you're not walking with the Lord like you were then or whatever. So let's bring you into our community. Let's observe you. You know, we'll, we're recognizing that this local body over here saw those things in you. But then maybe we will either, um, I don't want to say reordain you, but but we will reaffirm what another local body saw in you looking at the biblical qualifications. You know, it's, for me personally, whenever I talk about this, it's, I guess I get caught up in tradition a lot. And I love tradition, sometimes more than I should. Sometimes I think, you know, the, the majesty and the beauty of some of the things that we, we have carried on and that we have passed down and, and the way that we do things in the church that we continue to. And I look at uh, this little idea in church history, and we've talked about this whenever we talked about uh, in, in our Roman Catholic series, mm -hmm. but we talk about this idea of apostolic succession. 
And I remember not too long ago talking to a Roman Catholic friend, and he, he I just met him, and he's, he's, he's become a friend since then. But as I was talking to him, you know, I told him I was a pastor and I was ordained, and I saw him snicker a little bit. <laughs> and, and I was like, well, what was that about? And he said, well, nah, go on, go on. You know, you don't want to offend me. I, no, no, what is it about? He's like, you're not, you're not really ordained. And mm-hmm. I, I was like, why not? And he said, because you're not ordained into apostolic succession. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if we follow your method of ordination, then anybody can become a pastor and, and without any qualifications that are affirmed by the outside and affirmed by the great tradition itself. And normally, whenever people talk about the great tradition, and I'm talking about a capital G, capital T, we're talking about this this deposit of faith that many believe that is essential to be handed over each time, whenever the the church is in succession. And so, you if you're if you're starting a church, you're starting it according to the great tradition, not according to a dream you had last night or or a vision that you had that is outside of the great tradition itself. And so the idea with apostolic succession is an idea of protection, protection of the pastorate, protection of the eldership, protection of the church itself and the gospel itself in order to say, whenever you become a pastor, you have been ordained by someone who has been ordained, by someone who has been ordained, by someone who has been ordained, all the way back to the apostles in order to say that you are carrying on the true tradition of the church rather than a novel tradition that you may have come up with on your own. And we would, we would all agree that people come up with novel things, mm-hmm. right? And so I see this, and, and I don't ascribe to it in, in the sense of I believe you have to be ordained by someone who's ordained by someone who's been, I haven't been. But at the same time, I understand what's trying to be done. And I almost stop and say, we need to be more serious about this. We need to take it more seriously that we have some type of tradition, though it doesn't supersede the Bible, though it doesn't supersede the qualifications, but that we have some type of um, Protestant apostolic secession. Well, and I think we do in the sense that the um, apostles have bequeathed to us the authoritative writings that came from their pen through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And for me, it is the, uh, the Word of God written that governs the government of the church, that gives shape to uh, local ecclesiology. Um, so I would say, you know, you know, just come back to your statement, ordained by somebody who was ordained by somebody who was ordained, and we say that as if that suggests that um, those who are being ordained and in turn doing the ordaining are themselves always guaranteed uh, to be orthodox mm-hmm. and moral and Christ-like. Mm-hmm. And that's just simply not true. I mean, even the most uh, honest Roman Catholics even have to acknowledge as they look down in history, we had some real scoundrels who were in the papal chair. We had some guys who w- wouldn't even come close to being born again, who fathered multitudes of children and who um, who used the the power of the papacy to, to build up their bank accounts. Um, the fact is, simply because somebody's ordained ensures and guarantees nothing um, because they can always be uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, it's in, very interesting uh, when Paul is talking to to the Ephesian elders and giving them their commission. He says, from among your own selves, there will arise wolves in sheep's clothing who will 
teach twisted things, leading the flock astray. So Paul's saying, uh, simply following my advice, doing it this way, is no guarantee that you're going to remain pure and that those that you acknowledge as having authority and you call elders and you entrust the sheep to their care, there's no guarantee that they're not going to devour them, uh, that they're not going to destroy what you've placed in their hands and, and in their trust. So just the idea of ordination as if somehow that, um, that there's, and, and I do realize, of course, there is within the Roman Catholic tradition, this notion of a deposit and a promise of the Holy Spirit that um, there will be a power and a protection that is, um, that is granted to those who stand in succession to the apostles. Uh, practically speaking, I don't think it works out. I don't even think it can be upheld biblically. Uh, but you're just simply saying, I understand, what I understand, Michael, is that you want to see some measure of accountability and control that is exercised over those who find themselves in church leadership greater than the one that many Protestants uh, have experienced up till now. Is that what you're but suggesting? See, see I, I would suggest that, that that is built into the qualifications for an elder, though, in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Oh, I so so yeah. I don't want to, like, shoot down. I think Sam and I are kind of shooting down this ordination because I'm seeing why some people are downgrading ordination and instead just really upgrading what it takes to become an elder. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in Titus 1, uh, starting ver- or in verse 9, it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Uh, so he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And uh, what I think a lot of churches that downgrade ordination a little bit and upgrade just what it takes to be an elder would say, if someone enters into becoming an overseer, uh, many churches, uh, now this is not across the board, a lot of churches have their eldership set up differently, but um, uh the church that I'm a part of, at least the saying would be, or the idea from these passages is that as long as someone is doing this, they could be an elder for the rest of their life. But if they stop being able to do verse 9, they should step down as an elder or uh, be uh, be basically uh, fired as an elder, in a, uh, for lack of better terms. And so that kind of protects almost this this idea of like being a, uh, an elder means that you are in the succession of the apostles just by being able to fulfill this and uh, and you don't have this kind of like for life card that you just uh, have with you that you'll continue leading a church uh, even if you stop being able to fulfill these things well here's what i'll tell you that <clears throat> that is i i guess uh frustrates me is that when whenever i became ordained Whenever I, whenever I got the seminary degree, it was just tests and facts and, you know, Greek and Hebrew and stuff like that. There wasn't so much at the end, I feel like, that that qualified me in any way or, or said you know, a stamp of approval is upon you. I don't think the seminary was meant to put a stamp of approval on me for ministry. It was just, you know, prepare education. But I had to take tests. You know, it was a long test. It was... I think it was 50 pages, you know, of questions and answers. And, and then I had to get in front of the entire congregation and answer questions and, and uh, be drilled by seminary profs uh, from Dallas and pastors at Stonebriar. Every question from, if this woman came into you and she's been divorced twice and asked you this, what would you do? And then, um, or doctrinal questions, you know, do you believe that uh, one sin, all sins are equal in the sight of God? I mean, just on and on. 
on, these types of questions came at me. Now, here's the thing that I'm saying is that these questions and this qualification test represent this deposit being handed over and making sure that you are going to fulfill something that, that we would say is the gospel. Um, I mean, the qualifications of character in Timothy, those are great, but they don't tell you all the, what you are handing down, what the, what it is that you need to believe. Do you believe hell is eternal or do you believe that hell is temporary? Do you believe, uh, in, in, uh, Christ being the only way or just being one of many ways? These are all essential questions and you guys would agree with me that they're essential questions, but they come at some point of approval once you get them right. Am I, am I wrong in saying that this, I don't believe in succession of person, right? Mm -hmm. But I do believe in succession of teaching. Right. And so I'm trying to figure out how it is that you and I as Protestants make sure that we are also carrying on the great tradition and not starting something novel. Well, I think the passage that, that Tim read in Titus 1 mm -hmm. uh, is the clearest indication there where Paul is saying, whoever is going to serve as an elder has to understand the faith, they have to be able to identify heresy, they have to be able to teach the truth, rebuke falsehood. So there was a concept, I mean, Paul spoke oftentimes of the tradition that I'm handing over to you, the, the oral tradition of, of truth that became inscripturated through inspiration. And obviously he's calling those who would aspire to the office of an elder to adhere to that uh, body of truth as it is found ultimately, at least for us now, in the, in the written scriptures themselves. So there is, there are guidelines, there are parameters, there are, uh, there is accountability. Um, it's not just a free-for-all, like you say, you know, anybody who self-designates, like Tim said, looks in a mirror and says, yeah, I think I see in me all that I see in the text. That isn't enough. Um, there needs to be the affirmation, the, the examination, the approval of others. Now, to what degree does that take on the formal type of process like you went through, Michael? I didn't go through that. Um, uh, my, my, I didn't know you didn't go through that. Can we stop? <laughs> no, I find a, find a new no, guy. I, no, I've been ordained, but I didn't have to. I didn't go through any exams because I wasn't ordained until I had been in pastoral ministry for approximately, uh, gosh, 11 years. Uh, I was licensed. Now we're t using IRS terminology <laughs> here. I was licensed um, when I was a sophomore in college, which basically gave me all the legal standing of somebody who was ordained, yeah. which is interesting. And uh, the grounds on which the church licensed me was bizarre. I'd been raised in the church and I preached one sermon. They said, man, give him a certificate. <laughs> and I took it. Um, but ordination didn't come until 11 years later. So that's another question altogether. Where do we get this idea that you should have been brought before the church and made to take exams that are comparable, if not even more difficult than what you took in seminary? Uh, there's no biblical precedent for that. There's nothing in the Word of God that we can turn to and say, well, this is where we find that. This is what justifies it. But what you, what they were doing, I'm not saying it's therefore illegitimate. I think what they did was fine. I mean, I've heard that ordination exams in the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, are indescribably rigorous. Mm. Um, certainly what they're doing, they believe, is consistent with determining, all right, does this person really meet Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3 qualifications? This is the way we're going to go about making that determination as best we can. So I think it's perfectly okay, but it's not mandated by the Word of God. Mm -hmm. 
And could you, was there a clear process of how you could lose your ordination? You know, I, I think there is in the sense of, you know, stepping away from those qualifications uh, okay. of uh, Timothy. It was not anything formal written and says, you know, if you do this or this, you will lose it. It was more of uh, the elders at Stonebriar can take it away. Mm-hmm. And so that that was an interesting thing. But I, I guess here's what I'm saying is I'm, I'm trying to deal with a problem that we're always going to have to deal with. And we're, we're not really going to be able to solve as Protestants, especially Protestants within a more of a free church which we'll talk about more later what that means compared to other types of types of churches but it's like because I can't I can't, you can't uh, you know email uh, God and say send me the exam you know mm. <laughs> I mean it, it's something that we come up with on our own and we have to hope that it that it carries on the the biblical tradition and the the representation of the Holy Spirit's power throughout all of church history in the lives of believers and one other thing we need to address in another program is how does all this fit in all this man-made as it were, ordination process and examination. How does that fit in with Acts 20, 28, where Paul says that elders are made overseers by the Holy Spirit? Theology Unplugged is presented by the Credo House. For more information on the Credo House, visit www.credohouse.org.